Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. As Tiana said, happy St. Patrick's Day. I know we tend to celebrate this day as a day we wear green, and if you don't, get pinched. And uh, green beer and a green liver in Chicago. But i got to tell you what, St. Patrick is one of the greatest people that we could celebrate in the Christian tradition in all of history. I don't know if you know this, but he was an innovator in his day in a time when the church needed to be innovated. He went into uh, the country that had held him slave. He got free from slavery and went back as a missionary to the people who had enslaved him. And because of such winsome relationship in his one lifetime, won an entire nation that was considered one of the most barbaric cultures of the day to faith in Jesus. In fact, the study of St. Patrick and and the methods that he used and how he lived his faith in such a relationally winsome way have played a major impact on everything that you see that's healthy in the change of the church in America today over the past 20 years. In fact, it drives a lot of the reason why relationships are the mission for us. So there's a bigger reason than green beer and green rivers to celebrate St. Patrick today. So we're in this series called The Questions of Jesus, and God wants us to have a conversation with us. That's, that's what this whole thing is about. And the way Jesus started conversations in his day was oftentimes asking questions of people, and he still likes to ask us questions even today as well, uh, to begin a dialogue and a conversation with him. So the point of this series is to, for us to all expand our dialogue with Jesus through these questions. The problem of our culture today, though, is that when we say that we talk to God, they kind of look at us a little strange. And when we say we hear from God, God talks to us, they think we're crazy. But if when we think about prayer, we don't see it as a conversation, then it's going to seem to us scary and prideful to think that God might actually want to speak to us and communicate with us. Yet all throughout the Bible, this conversing with God is, is a reality. All throughout history, we see God conversing with us. We see it even in our own experience as a church. Our goal of these questions is to learn to have a conversation with Jesus, to understand more deeply and personally for each of us how the Spirit wants to communicate with us. Wherever you are in that process, wherever you understand yourself to be and how you hear God, just start there. Don't don't be discouraged if you feel like you don't know much about how God is actually speaking to you. He's speaking to you more than you think. It's just a process of learning how He's doing that with you. So I want to encourage you to take some time with these questions of Jesus and see what you might say in return to him, and then see if that ends up in a a dialogue that's greater, where you encounter God. Today's question is, I think, one of the most common things that we struggle with in life. I think every single one of us will be able to relate to this. The question is, has no one condemned you? I think today's question is possibly the most powerful. This question, has no one condemned you, actually leads us to the core of the gospel. Jesus' whole purpose and message and the entire Christian faith rests upon our understanding and our response to this question. In fact, many theologians cite Romans 8, which talks about no condemnation, as the crown jewel of the Bible, where it so poignantly says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law 
of sin and death. See, condemnation is the just penalty for our sin, our rejecting of God and his ways. Condemnation brings death. Now, physical death is a reality that we experience. Sin brought that into the world. But in our daily experience, that death looks more like death to dreams or death to joy or death to hope or feeling bound and limited or put down by others' judgments of us. But this text says Jesus has taken away that condemnation. He's taken our sin, our just penalty of death upon himself so that as the rest of Romans 8 makes very apparent, we don't have to experience rejection or condemnation or separation from God. Now let's contrast that to America today where condemnation is the cultural and political currency of our day. I mean, isn't it interesting that we constantly hear tolerance preached and yet condemnation still rules the day? It's interesting, in our, 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 one of the most America's favorite out-of-context quotes of Jesus is, is, do not judge. And yet condemnation is still the cultural currency of most people in America today. We see it, uh, it hugely popular in, for instance, Jimmy Kimmel's mean tweets, right? Where celebrities read mean tweets that people posted about them. Here are some of the, the nicest ones we could find. Imagine the damage Steph Curry would be doing in the NBA if he didn't have such a girly name. Hashtag change it to Steve. Uh, That's mean, right? There are people who think Julie Roberts is hot. Her gigantic mouth looks like it will devour an elephant in one bite. That's just plain mean, right? And Daniel Radcliffe is one of God's most unattractive creations since the aardvark. That's mean. Or this one. Selena Gomez is on the radio right now. Is their volume lower than mute? I mean... This is the currency of our humor too, right? Condemnation of other people. We see this cultural currency of condemnation used against anyone who politically opposes you, right? Look no further than the condemnation that took off at the initial incident with Jesse Smollett or the Covington Catholic case or or just look generally at the mean condemning name-calling tweets of every politician and media pundit towards everybody else on the other side of the fence or the other side of an issue. I mean, condemnation is judging the very essence and the value of the other person. In other words, you are wrong and therefore you are evil. You disagree with me and therefore you're a person who has no compassion. Your politics or way of dealing with immigration or or people in need or the economy or the environment or the national budget is different than mine, so you are un-American, racist, xenophobic, sexist, and a whole bunch of other horrible descriptors, right? You believe differently than someone else about morality or sexuality, so therefore you are an unloving, judgmental, horrible, unintelligent human being. In the cultural currency of condemnation, no one can disagree and still be loving or wise. And that's the culture we live in today. Let's make that a little more personal. So tell me, has someone ever condemned you? I've been called an evil, horrible person by some very nice people. I've been told I was an incompetent person destined to fail. I've been told I was a selfish SOB in some of the most unselfish moments of my life. What have people called you and labeled you as? How have people condemned you? Have they condemned you because of an addiction or a hang-up or, or because you worry or because of anger or because of the way you use money, or maybe it's because of your work success or, or lack thereof, or, 
Or have they condemned you because of the sexual struggles that have often gotten the best of you? I mean, anyone here ever been labeled selfish or narcissistic by someone else? Whatever it is, every one of us, when condemned, has experienced the feeling and the realization that something is wrong. And that the problem, the reason people condemn us, is at least in part us. I mean, when we're condemned, too often we believe that our sin is more than just a failure of behavior in the moment. It's who we are. And the voice in our head insists, you are just a drunk. You are just an unfaithful person. You are just a loser. You lack self-control and you'll never have it. You are dumb. You are unlovable. You are, and you probably have a lot of other words that you've heard in your own mind about yourself. Each and every one of us has been condemned by someone in the past. And some of those messages have stuck with us and they still crop up today like hair triggers exploding in us, controlling the way we feel and the way we respond to life way too often. Even further, haven't we all been in a position of doing something we know is not right and we ourselves have condemned others in a way that we spoke to them or or in a way that we treated them? Matt Crossman, a vineyard pastor and author, talks about condemnation this way. He says, Condemnation is conviction robbed of hope. Condemnation leaves us feeling incapacitated, unfit for God to bless us or work through us. In spite of the fact that we know condemnation does not feel good or even help, all of us have labeled others with condemnation in a way that has robbed them of the hope of change at one time or another when we've said things to them like, oh, well, they're hopeless. Or they're idiots couldn't find their way out of a wastebasket if you paid them to, right? In the, in the Bible's language, we have all sinned by condemning other people. So to examine this a little more today, we're going to spend all of our time in John 8 from here on. You may notice if you pull out your Bible that this passage in John 8 is, is, is said that it's not found in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel. Most scholars still believe it to be a genuine story of Jesus that because there's strong evidence of it being orally shared and having been written in fragment form for many years before it was incorporated into John 8 here where we're going to read it today. So it is a genuine story of Jesus, and it reads this. It says, Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came with him, and he sat down and he taught them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst... They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So I, just, I want you to imagine, you've got to imagine being there in this story as it's happening. These religious leaders, the respected community leaders, dragging this woman before Jesus, the crowd in tow, everyone already with big stones in their hands, ready to throw at her. This is a really intense, scary moment. The Pharisees are are concerned in general about Jesus' popularity and that he will lead people astray. And, And they're further suspicious of Jesus because he spends a lot of time with the sinners that they condemn. And so they think, well, he spent so much time with them, he must be a secret sinner himself. So they don't trust his character or his morality. They will do anything to undermine him. So they bring this woman caught in adultery. Now, where's the man? I mean, it takes two to tango. If she were caught in the act of adultery, it's kind of hard to catch her without the man, right, in the act. He should have been there, but he isn't. 
So what is apparent is the religious leaders have a singular goal to take Jesus down in this moment. This mob trial is not about justice for the woman or even this particular sin or the law of God. It is about Jesus. So they've set what they believe is an ingenious trap. And it actually is a really difficult one. If Jesus answers the question, what do you say, with, well, don't stone her. Forgive her and let her go. Then Jesus is breaking the Old Testament law and people will see that and they will turn against him, which is what they want to happen. But if Jesus says, well, stone her, then Jesus is not as gracious and merciful as the crowds think he should be. And further, he will also be arrested by the Romans for committing murder. This is a high-pressure, answer-me-now situation. So what does Jesus do? Well, it says Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground as they continued to ask him. Now, a lot of people have asked, what did Jesus write on the ground? And frankly, we don't know. Everyone's wanted to know that for the past 2,000 years. But actually, you don't really need to know what he was writing. You just need to know that he was writing in the ground to understand the significance of this. This incident happened either on the Sabbath or on the last day of the Festival of Booths, which is treated like the Sabbath. The rabbinical writings during Jesus' time, it spent a lot of time trying to decide what was allowable on the Sabbath and what was work and therefore a violation of the Sabbath, including they spent a lot of time writing about what you could write on the Sabbath and whether that was work or not. The rabbi's judgment of the day determined that you could not write anything that was permanent on the Sabbath. I know that sounds crazy, but that's what they wrote. So what what you wrote had to be temporary and erasable. In fact, one of the specific things they said you could do on the Sabbath was write in the dirt because the wind or the rain would either blow it away or wash it away. It was temporary. So get this, Jesus writing on the ground is a profound demonstration and an actual challenge to these religious leaders that Jesus not only knows the Old Testament law and respects it, but he is also extremely well-versed in their traditions of the day. So Jesus writing in the dirt is actually communicating two things. The first one is, hey, every one of you who walked here and accused this woman on the Sabbath as I'm doing something that's allowable on the Sabbath, you actually broke the Sabbath by walking here. You violated God's law already. And the second thing he's saying is what's happening here, it's not going to last. It'll all be blown away. But get this, the leaders continue to press them. And Jesus, by kneeling down, is also creating this space where he can converse with the Spirit, but he's also letting what is happening sink in for the crowd and for this woman. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is at once acknowledging the sin of the woman standing before him while also acknowledging and confronting the egregious sinful damage the hypocrisy of the religious leaders represents when they use the law of God as a club to simultaneously beat up people while trying to bolster their self-righteousness and how they think about themselves. See, the law's purpose is not to show us how good we are. It's not to be used to prove that we are good or better than someone else. The law of God shows us what is good and that it's impossible for humans to live up to it. 
therefore leading us back to this need for us to depend on God in faith to receive salvation from him. You see, Jesus begins his confrontation of sin through helping everyone in the crowd identify with the destruction and the pain and the sin of the sinner by facing the sin in themselves first. See, sin in any form, destroys God's intended good and beauty and love in life. Sin is falling short of love, good, right, best, and healthiest. So let's continue the story, and in a moment we're going to draw some lessons from it. It says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Jesus again gives his listeners and the accusers time to ponder his statement and look inward. And the text goes on, But when they heard it, They went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So imagine and feel what this moment is like. The adulterous woman, likely on her knees in fear or having been forced to her knees, she's crouching there on the ground, hands overhead, waiting for the first rock to strike, knowing she will be dead in a few moments as her life flashes before her eyes. She's likely sobbing uncontrollably or breathlessly in fear, waiting for the first rock to strike. Maybe even she's so overcome by by emotion that she can't actually even hear the people around her dropping the rocks and leaving as her sandals shuffle through the dirt. Finally, the silence is so thick, she stands up, she begins to look around. Verse 10 says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, some people try to use Jesus' forgiveness here as a way of diminishing the danger and severity of sin or dismissing it altogether. They argue that Jesus is advocating for tolerance in the same way our culture thinks of it. But N.T. Wright, one of the greatest scholars over the last century, says this is an absurd argument. Forgiveness is not the same thing as tolerance. Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. On the contrary, forgiveness means that sin does matter but that God is choosing to set it aside. So let's take the remaining moments and let's draw some lessons out of this. First one is condemnation defines a person's identity. Condemnation doesn't just say, that was a bad joke, you failed to be funny. Condemnation says, you are a pitiful person and you are never going to be funny. Condemnation doesn't just say, you sinned and hurt yourself and others through a sexual affair. No, condemnation says, you are a slut, that's who you are. Condemnation doesn't just say, you failed the test. Condemnation says, you are stupid and you will never be anything but stupid. Condemnation just doesn't say, your actions contributed to the failure of that relationship. It says, you are not lovable, you are a mean person, you are unable and will never have good relationships. Unfortunately, All of us have experienced condemnation to a greater or lesser degrees. And honestly, we have believed some of those messages of condemnation are true about who we are. Even if those voices of condemnation are people from our childhood years ago, if not decades ago, we believe we are what those condemning voices say we are at some level. Something happens 
a certain topic comes up. And those voices from the past, we hear them in our minds, we feel them in our hearts, we feel, I am unlovable, I am stupid, I am a loser. A few weeks ago, I messed up, and I didn't treat Wendy well in a conversation. I sinned against her. I went into the conversation fully aware that the topic we were going to talk about had a good chance of tempting me to not communicate well or not communicate kindly. And yet a few phrases said, a few comments made, triggered something in me, and I did not successfully have the loving self-control that I intended to have in that conversation. Anyone else ever experienced that? Something your boss says triggers you? Something your parents or your siblings or your spouse says triggers something in you? You have an experience with someone you barely know that reminds you of another experience in the past and, and it sets you off? Those triggers are related to the condemning voices in your head. They may be other people's voices. They may be your voice telling you what a horrible person you really are. I find what Jesus does in this passage so inspiring and powerful in the way it speaks to me and the voices of condemnation. I hope it'll speak to you as well. And I'm going to actually lead you through a little bit today what is a classic Christian spiritual habit of meditation to hopefully help you experience how profoundly powerful what Jesus does in this passage really is for each and every one of us. So first, to prepare ourselves, I want you to take a moment and I want you to think of the struggles that you struggle with, the triggers that you struggle with, the condemning voices that haunt you from your past or your present. Triggers are experiences that bring up those past voices and feelings. For some of you, you know your accusers well. You, you know your boss, your ex. You know the friend who doesn't talk to you anymore. You know your colleague or your coach or that bully from years ago that keeps coming back into your mind. The accusers telling you about what a terrible person you are, how terrible of a job you're doing in life. So close your eyes. Try not to go to sleep. It's okay if you do. No guilt. Can you hear your accusers? Can you hear what they're saying to you? Are they saying you're not good enough? Are they saying you're not worth enough? You're not lovable? You're not smart enough? Are they saying you're not disciplined enough, you lazy SOB? What are the voices that say you will never be or you are always going to be. The voices that tell you you should be ashamed of yourself. Okay, have something in mind? Now I'm going to invite you to do a visualization. I want you to see yourself as the person being dragged before Jesus in our story by all the people and the voices of condemnation in your head. Know yourself here and feel the condemnation, the demeaning voices saying who you are in front of the crowd and in front of Jesus. Let yourself feel the uncertainty of the moment as Jesus is bent before you, writing on the ground, silent. He's not responding. You don't know what he's going to do. What does that feel like? Now visualize standing up, Jesus standing up and saying to all the people in the voices of condemnation, the one who is without sin, you be the first to cast the stone. Still don't know what's going to happen. It's just silence. 
as Jesus serenely and patiently writes on the ground in front of you, all while you were expecting that first stone to hit and pound more life out of you. What does that feel like? Now allow yourself to hear one by one the stones dropping on the ground, the feet of those condemning voices just shuffling off as they leave. You're all alone with Jesus and Jesus quietly stands up and he reaches out and he gently pulls your chin up, looks you in the eye and he asks, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Go ahead and open your eyes. Slap the person next to you if they're snoring. So I know our main question today is how no one condemned you. But that's actually the second question Jesus asks. And I don't want to miss the power of the first question he asks. Where are they? Where are the people, those voices who condemn you? For many of us, those voices that condemn us are in the past, gone. Sometimes they're even dead. But they're still felt and experienced by us as true. But they are no more. Now, a common way we tend to respond to condemnation is for us to condemn others as well. And here's what that looks like. We expose all their faults of the people and the voices condemning us in order to make us feel better. We argue with the voices in our heads, speaking to the people, even if they're no longer here. You know, I speak to my coach, my high school coach once in a while, condemning him, putting him in his place. We fight condemnation, actually with more condemnation. We point out the sin in others and we argue that we should think better of ourselves. We get caught in this destructive, unhealthy loop in our life, in our minds, in our thinking. See, Jesus in saying, let the one who is without sin be the first to cast the stone is eliminating the need for us to fight condemnation with condemnation. And then Jesus asks the question, where are they? They're gone. They're not worthy of condemning. And I mean, of course, we know the arguments in our head. We know they've sinned and messed up too. They are not perfect. They are not qualified to judge us. Where are they? They're gone. So why pay attention to the ones who have left? Why pay attention to the voices of the past that are only in your head? Why pay attention to the wounds of people who condemn you in order to make themselves feel justified? Jesus is saying, where are they? They're gone. And I'm still with you. And I'm the only one without sin. I am the only one truly qualified to judge you. And they're gone, but I'm still with you. So in asking us, where are they? Jesus is asking us to answer a larger question. What does that mean about you? that they are gone, and that Jesus, the sinless one, the only one qualified to cast a stone, is still with you. I mean, Jesus is saying, has no one rightly condemned you? No, no one can rightly condemn you. 
except the one without sin, me, Jesus is saying, I am still here with you. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Can you experience in this moment the God of the universe coming to you by His Spirit and saying to you, neither do I condemn you. I mean, Jesus is fighting on our behalf, inviting us all to see that all those condemning voices, they're not true and not lasting, and in many instances, not real anymore. They are gone. So from whom will you get your identity? See, the voices of the condemning ones, will you get them from them? When the truth is, they just have to drop their stones when the truth is brought up? They don't have any justification to tell you who you are. Or will you get your identity from the one who created you, who is still there, the only one who can truly speak to who you are? See, while condemnation is about identity, Jesus is also showing us in this the appropriate power of conviction. Conviction is about behavior. and actually calls us to the best, truest version of who we are. See, the conviction of God speaks to our behavior, but it does not label us. Instead, His love actually helps us experience how valuable we are to Him and therefore motivates us to become our best and truest self. I love how speaker Lance Walnow says it. He says, conviction feels different than condemnation. Condemnation makes you feel self-contempt, but conviction makes you feel like you're called to be more. See, condemnation leaves us feeling defeated. Conviction unlocks the greatest potential for change. Jesus treats this woman caught in adultery with such great gentleness and respect, even in the midst of her destructive sin and the anger of the crowd. And yet Jesus' mercy and forgiveness doesn't ignore the sin and doesn't diminish the destructiveness of sin. See, if you notice in the New Testament, grace and truth are often stated in the same sentence, if not the same phrase. You don't fully know the measure of grace given you unless you also face the truth. See, grace without truth is really just denial. If I deeply offend someone by my actions, if I greatly offend God with my actions and I never understand and I never own what I did wrong and what it cost them and the destruction it brought, I don't really know grace. I just live in denial. For example, there's certainly grace, forgiveness, and healing for those caught in adultery just like for this woman. But unless you face the truth and destruction brought on by the adultery, the alienation of the relationships, the destruction of trust, the wounding adultery creates in family and friends who may now have more baggage to make marriage harder for them in the future, the cost it costs you in friendship, the destruction it may cause in the other person's family. If one or both parties end up in divorce, the tremendous financial setback that represents piled on top of the relational destruction and the damage it does to God's plan for others around you, unless you face the truth, you don't fully know how extravagant the grace you are being given truly is. See, this woman faced the truth 
stated to her condemningly by the leaders and the mob. But Jesus also helps her face the truth in a different way. He does it by treating her with such dignity and profound kindness. And yet Jesus still calls her to sin no more. Now, I get that that sin no more statement that Jesus makes causes many of us to react with hopelessness. I mean, we talk about that. We go, how in the world am I supposed to do that? I mean, I know I'm going to sin again, if not this way in another area in the future. That that just seems like pressure and demanding. But this is where that meditating and visualization of a, a practice in a situation like this can become so powerful for you in helping you connect to God in your situation. So close your eyes again. I want you to take yourself back to that place you were a minute ago, waiting for that first stone to strike. Reconnect with the feelings you would have waiting for the first stone, waiting in the unknown of what Jesus is going to do. And then in that silence, after the last accuser has walked away, your head's still down in shame, and you're all alone with Jesus. Feel the angst of your own internal questions. What will Jesus do? You don't know what he's going to do. Feel what it's like to have this really good, great man, this sinless man, Jesus, the Messiah, the only one who can rightfully judge you and condemn you before you, and you don't know what he's going to do. And then you see Jesus gently stand up, You feel his finger on your chin, tenderly lifting your head out of that shameful posture so your eyes meet. And he gently asks you, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And you can all go ahead and answer. If you're you're in that place, just say, no one, Lord. And Jesus gently, kindly says to you with a loving smile, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus says it with the same patient kindness and tenderness and restraint that you've seen him exhibit throughout this whole experience. This man who so gently kept his calm even treated the angry accusers with patient thoughtfulness. How do you feel about that statement, sin no more, now, seeing yourself there? Okay, you can open your eyes. I don't know about you, But for me, that sin no more becomes a hopeful aspiration of my heart. In that moment, it becomes that because I'm overwhelmed with the forgiveness and love like I have never experienced. That love and forgiveness changes my heart and allows me to walk uh, away full of conviction as to what is right and best and good because I have just experienced right and best and good. You see, in conviction, the truth empowers us and sets us free to grow. Condemnation paralyzes us and enslaves us. And when we get caught in that cycle of condemnation, trying to prove ourselves, it is about the arguments of our head and the effort of our will to justify our worth compared to those who condemn us and to prove we are something better than we are, something better than they say we are. But when we encounter Jesus' love like this, it's really about realizing how greatly we are loved 
and how wonderfully we are made and how valuable we are to God. And that frees us to just step into who we really are. Which brings us to our final lesson, which is really a reemphasizing of something we've already said. The only voice that counts in telling us who we are is Jesus' voice. We've all sinned. We all deserve condemnation. We don't even live up to our own expectations that we have of ourselves of what is right and best and good, much less God's good expectations. But it isn't until we see God coming to us like Jesus comes to this woman caught in adultery that we truly realize how patient, how kind, how loving, how forgiving, how good God really is toward us, toward me, toward you. It isn't until we see God coming to us like this that we realize what it looks like for God to love us so much that he considers us valuable enough that he would come as Jesus to fulfill justice by taking the penalty of our sin upon himself so that we can receive mercy and be loved and be freed and be empowered by God's Spirit to be restored to the best, truest version of who we really are as we follow God. See, I believe God has each and every one of us here Myself, you, every one of us, today, because God wants to silence your accusers, those voices in your head, those voices in your life that define you in condemning ways. God wants you to encounter him like this woman encountered him. For some of you, you may want to go over this scripture more this week and and, and the additional ones we put on Facebook with the more questions and, and let God touch you more in this arena this week. Maybe even spend some extended time doing the visualization meditation that I tried to lead you through today to allow God to identify those voices in your head and to send those condemning voices away. See, I believe God has us all here today as well to sensitize each and every one of us to the ways that we get caught in that condemnation loop and we condemn others, even if it's just in our head, and instead to learn to be like Jesus in every moment of our life like with this woman caught in adultery so that we can see God more powerfully work through us to bring others into the freedom and to the best, truest version of who God made them to be. And for some here, You haven't yet declared yourself as a committed follower of Jesus. You haven't gone all in. You may may be sticking your toe in the edge, but you're not all in. And God has you here today for you to connect with who he truly is. The one who is patient, the one who is kind, the one who forgives your sins and helps you walk free into the truest and best version of who you are as you follow him. The question is, will you make that choice? to follow him in that way. If so, in just a moment, I want to ask you to come down after we're done with the next song and we've got prayer team down here. Come down and just talk to one of the prayer team people and tell them you're making that choice and they'd love to pray for you and help encourage you in that choice. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, thank you that your spirit is here with us. Thank you for including this and so many other powerful stories in the Bible that teach us about how much you love us. Lord, I pray that you would continue in each and every one of us to, to, to expose the voices of condemnation, 
to send them away, to cause the chains that we have lived with for years where we thought, I will always be this and I will never be this and I'm always going to fall short here. All those condemning things that we live with each and every day, Lord, did you send them all away for each and every one of us? And by your Spirit, would you come and help us encounter in a very real way how much you love us how much you say to us, has no one condemned you, then neither do I. Even as we turn now and worship, Lord, would you let our words be an expression of our heart to you, and would you come with your presence and meet us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.